Good morning once again. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8? And this morning I want to just start by reading you uh, just a small uh, portion uh, from Dave Hunt's book called America, The Sorcerer's New Apprentice. He said, and I quote, Today's world confronts a strange and growing paradox that could very well mark a pivotal point in human history. Even as the scientific and technological advances which ushered in the space age is accelerating at an exponential rate, we are witnessing far and away the greatest occult explosion of all time. The evidence seems to indicate that something of unusual historic significance is in the process. Primitive pagan religious practices that were generally confined to the underdeveloped third world countries and were regarded in the West with suspicion and ridicule only a few years ago are now being embraced by increasing millions of enthusiasts worldwide. The last time anything approaching this mass flight from reason to mysticism occurred was in the 1920s and 30s. It was very likely this great occult resurgence in, the, in Western Europe and particularly in Austria and Germany helped to set the stage for Germany's acceptance of Nazism, end quote. And I read that because we are seeing in our nation a real explosion in the area of mysticism and the occult. You know, we see a real explosion in our nation and across the world uh, in the rise of, uh, of interest in the occult and so on, which I believe is really setting the stage for the Antichrist, which Hitler, I think, was a foreshadowing of. Now, I'm not going there this morning. I just want to let you know, though, that the uh, first century Greco-Roman world was a world steeped in paganism and occultism. Many people got into these things because they were kind of raised with them. That's all they knew. And the darkness that had a hold of them was darkness that had a hold of pretty much everybody until the gospel began to make inroads and the light began to pierce the darkness and dispel the darkness as more and more people received Christ and were saved. Of course, when you get involved with the occult, there is often a high price to pay. And that brings us this morning to our text in Matthew 8. And I want to pick it up in verse 28. As we are introduced to two men, both of them whom were heavily demon-possessed, one especially so. And we read in verse 28, when he, and that would be Jesus, had come to the other side of the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. So when they had come out, they went into the herd of swine, and suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Remember that in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew is showing us the power of the king. Remember we said when we started the Matthew's gospel that uh, Matthew's theme, 
is to present Jesus Christ as the long-awaited Messiah and King of Israel. And so far in Matthew's Gospel, we have been introduced to the person of the King in chapters 1 through 4, then the principles of the King in chapters 5 through 7, known as the Sermon on the Mount, and now in chapters 8 and 9, he is showing us the power of the King. And Matthew does this by recording ten miracles which Jesus did. And his point is to show, to demonstrate Jesus' authority and power over disease, demons, nature, and over death itself. This story, of course, demonstrates his authority over the forces of the devil. And it's consistent, by the way, with Jesus' whole ministry in general. Because when Jesus started his ministry, remember he went to Nazareth where he grew up, into the synagogue on the Sabbath, and they handed him a scroll of Isaiah, turned to a specific place, and read these words, officially launching his ministry. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. Listen, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Oppressed of the devil. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter is talking to the household of Cornelius, as the Spirit of God sent uh, Peter to witness to them, to share the gospel. And um, he's talking to them about Jesus and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And so here we see this very thing in this passage this morning. Jesus is setting the captives free. Jesus is healing those oppressed by the devil. Let's look at the story again, but this time let's take a composite look at it, looking at the three synoptic Gospels and what they have to say. Synoptic means similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels, and they each record this story. Uh, Some of them give us a little more at times than the others, so let's kind of bring them together and see, uh, get a fuller uh, idea of what actually took place on this day. And I'm going to build this around three main points, okay? What Satan did what society did, and what the Savior did with regard to this account. All right. First of all, again, verse 28 of Matthew 8, we read, When they had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes. Now, as I said, they had spent a few days in Capernaum. Capernaum became the Lord's base of operations when he was ministering in the Galilee. So they have finished a hard day of ministry in, in Capernaum. They get into a boat and they cross the the Sea of Galilee. Uh, But of course, as we saw last time, a storm came up and and Jesus had to calm the storm and so on. But they finally made it across, all right? And uh, they were in Capernaum, which is on the uh, northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. They cross over to the northeast side, which is where the small town of Gergesa was. And uh, there they come to town and... If you've ever seen pictures of of this area, I've been there, all around the Sea of Galilee, it's kind of level, okay, kind of flat, there's some mounds and things, but uh, it's only right here where there's a steep cliff where these uh, swine could run down and drown in the sea, as we're going to see in a moment. So the geography fits the story perfectly. And so when they had come to the country of the Gergesenes, it says in verse 28, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. Now, Mark and Luke only record one man. They only talk about one guy, and some people see in this a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. Matthew says there were two. Uh, Mark and Luke only focus on the one who was the one who was exceedingly demon-possessed, the one who was the dominant 
person in the story of the two. So don't let that throw you that he only, they only focus on the one. He's the main guy, in a sense, all right? And they were possessed by demons. Demons are really unclean spirits, probably fallen angels. I say probably because not everybody agrees with that. They're probably fallen angels who follow Lucifer in his rebellion against God. You can read two classic passages uh, in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, talk about this and, of course, who Lucifer was and so on, how that Lucifer was created to be the chief angel over all the other angels. He was the anointed cherub that covered, in other words, was uh, over the others. He was also the worship leader of heaven. He was the most beautiful creature God ever made. He was perfect in wisdom and beauty until the day iniquity was found in him. And the iniquity was, I don't want to be number two. I want to be God. And so he led a revolt in heaven. Can you imagine that? going to overthrow God, I guess they thought. Uh, Revelation 12 tells us that a third of the angels followed Lucifer in his rebellion. Of course, the coup was unsuccessful, and Satan and his followers became fallen angels. Again, not everyone agrees with that. Some say that there's a difference between angels and de- fallen angels and demons, but they don't explain what the difference is or how they came to that. I don't know. I mean, if demons are not fallen angels, what are they? Okay, and where did they come from? Maybe the best way to answer that is that Satan's top lieutenants became fallen angels, but more the grunts, the low-level operatives in Satan's army were possibly given the title demons. We don't know. I think it's just safe to say, though, they're probably fallen angels of some kind. And so after the coup, the rebellion in heaven failed, they were fallen uh, they were defeated, but they were not done. Satan was cast to the earth, although he still has access to heaven, but the earth became his domain. And the devil and his demons exported their rebellion to the earth. Satan, of course, took the form of a serpent, and he wanted to get back at God. Well, how do you get back at God? You get at those that God loves. And so he took the form of a serpent, and he tempted Eve to eat of the fruit that God had forbidden uh, Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, lied to her, you'll become a god, your eyes will be open, you know, knowing good and evil, and so on and so forth. She thought that was a good idea. She ate the forbidden fruit, and she fell, gave to Adam, he fell. And because man had fallen, man now had a fallen nature. And this gave the devil and his demons uh, a new avenue through which to attack man from now the inside. I mean, before the fall, they, Satan had to come to them directly, outwardly, okay, to, to tempt them. Now, because of the fallen nature... Satan and his demons could work from within and uh, influence man in a variety of ways, you know, either through uh, oppression or some kind of control or even full-blown possession, depending on how much a person opened themselves up to these evil beings, these, these demons and so on. Look, I'm going to say this, and I could be wrong, but here's my conviction. I don't believe personally a person can be possessed by demons that has not opened the door to a demon or demon's by getting involved in spiritual practices that God has forbidden. I don't believe a person can be demon-possessed. We could all be influenced. We can all be oppressed. We can all be controlled to some degree or another without being completely possessed by a demon. And I don't personally believe a child of God can be possessed by a demon. I think we can be obviously oppressed and even influenced if we allow ourselves. Uh, but demon possession is something that I don't believe a person can really experience unless they've been messing around with things God has forbidden. So I think that these two guys had opened themselves up in some way to this 
demonic possession. We read in Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, uh, verses 2 through 5, it says, And when Jesus had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. I can't imagine a more pitiful existence than the one these two men were experiencing. It says these men lived out in the tombs. Well, these were burial chambers, and uh, every town had their burial chambers. Usually, of course, uh, they were um, outside of town. Sometimes they were just in natural caves. Uh, in the mountainside, sometimes there are actually uh, man-made caves that was that were hewn out of the mountainside, and they became these uh, these burial chambers. And it, the idea was that once they they carved out a cave or found a natural cave, they would carve shelves in the walls and lay the bodies there. Now this is where these two men lived. They lived in the tombs, which was incredible. They were living among the dead because they were living dead themselves. A horrible existence, all right? But see, they had sold their souls to the devil, I'm convinced, through their involvement with paganism and its worship of demons and other occult practices. This was the result. We read in Matthew 8, verse 29, And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Mark says in chapter 5, verses 6 and 7 of his gospel, when he saw, now this would be the dominant of the two, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Of course, as the demons addressed Jesus as the Son of God, it demonstrates immediately that they knew who he was. The demons knew who he was even before the people he ministered to knew who he was. In fact, a couple of times they announced who he was. We know who you are. You're the son of God. What did the Lord say to him? Shut up. I don't want the devil advertising who I am. But Mark tells us one of the guys ran up to Jesus and worshipped him. The Greek word for worship there is proskuneo, and it simply means to bow towards. And it wasn't a holy word or a sanctified word. It was used in secular terms of bowing before a king or anybody who was of a higher rank than you, a governor, a prince, or even a commanding officer. And the idea was that you would go up to the person, you would, you would bow in an act of submission and uh, respect. And here the demons bow before Jesus as the God of the universe in an act of respect, whether they like it or not. And folks, they don't like it. They hate everything to do with God. And yet they are powerless to do anything but bow before him when in his presence. Even as every rebel that has ever lived is going to someday come before the throne of Jesus. And there every knee is going to bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. If you do that right now while you're still alive, you enter into the kingdom of God, the family of God, and the blessings of God for all eternity. If a person rebels against God their whole life and dies, they will someday stand before him at the great white throne judgment and they will bow the knee and they will confess he is Lord to the glory of God, but that will be too late. But they will still bow the knee and have to acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord. 
Now the question that the demons asked Jesus, have you come here to torment us before the time indicates that they know full well that God has appointed a time when they're going to be judged and cast into hell. Satan knows that his time is limited. In fact, as we come to Revelation chapter 12, finally he is cast once and for all out of heaven as Michael the archangel leads his angels, the good angels, in battle against the devil and his demons, and they are now cast out of heaven for good. And we read the text says, And Satan came down to the earth having great wrath, because he knew his time was short. He knows he's going down. You say, well, if he knows he's going down, what does he hassle so many people for? He wants to take as many people down with him as possible. He's so miserable, so hateful, that if he's going down, man, he's taking as many people down with him as he possibly can. Now, Mark says in chapter 5, verse 9, then he, namely Jesus, asked him, and now he's talking to the demons directly. He said, what is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. As I said, Mark and Luke only focus on the man who was especially demon-possessed. In fact, this has got to be the worst case of demonic possession recorded in the Bible. And listen, maybe, that has ever happened in the history of the world. Why do I say that? There were so many demons in this guy, they identified themselves as Legion. The term legion was used in the Roman military to denote a company of Roman soldiers, listen, 6,000 strong. I don't know if this guy has 6,000 demons in him. Can you imagine if they called themselves legion because it was comparable to a Roman legion? And again, I don't personally believe a person can be possessed by a demon who hasn't opened the door in some way by messing around with some sort of paganism. And this would include pagan worship like Satanism, witchcraft, Hinduism, or other forms of pagan worship. Paul said uh, that the things that the Gentiles offer or sacrifice to idols, to their gods, they're really sacrificing to demons. Look, today, there's a lot of people that think that anybody who believes in demons is really out there. Just really one of those superstitious religious nuts. That was all... You know, people used to ascribe all kinds of things to demons. But now, scientifically, medically, we know they're just diseases and mental disorders. Really, really. I believe demons are very real. And I believe they're very active. In America, they're undercover. In third world countries, they're out in the open. But they are very much alive, very much real. And the Bible uh, affirms that. And we would be wise not to deny that. Because I'm telling you, it's a real thing. But, you know, there are also objects that are designed to bridge the gap between the natural and supernatural realms. Things like Ouija boards, tarot cards, crystal balls, not to mention uh, meditation practices like TM or contemplative prayer. All of these are designed to bridge the gap between the natural realm and the supernatural realm. And when you get involved with these practices, what you're doing is you're opening the door. You're opening the door. And... Now you're putting yourself uh, at the mercy of the devil who, folks, has no mercy. And that's why God commands us to stay away from the spirit realm. And I'm talking about the spirit realm apart from God. To stay away from the spirit realm, from mediums, from diviners, from all, anything that would uh, connect you to the spirit realm because God knows that is the realm of Satan and his demons. And Satan can come as an angel of light to deceive. People who get involved in the occult, they don't think they're talking to demons. They think they're talking to 
uh, ascended white masters, uh, benevolent spirits that are there to help them. It's all deception. And, you know, a lot of times people will say who are involved in the New Age and certain meditation practices and things that, look, I mean, you know, nothing bad's happened to me. I have peace. I get a sense of euphoria when I spend time meditating and connecting with that realm. Well, these are hooks designed to hook a person and drag them under Satan's control. If you want to read an eye-opening book, read um, Joanna Michaels' book, The Beautiful Side of Evil. There's a beautiful side of evil. It's the side that the devil uses to hook a person and drag them under his control. I mean, look at the effect that the, that the occult and paganism had on these two men. You know, why do people get involved in the occult? You know, that's a good question. I've actually seen people who have been interviewed who are into the occult and were asked that very question. And almost always they would say, and they're usually young people who get involved in these things young. Uh, initially what they say was, that what got me interested in occultism was uh, the promise of power. I wanted power to make uh, somebody of the opposite sex fall for me or to put the spells on my enemies and things. I wanted that power. And the occult is appealing because it does promise a degree of power. But what they don't realize is that power comes at a great price, their freedom. And all we've got to do again is look at these two men, and especially the one of the, who is the dominant member of this duo. He opened himself up to the spirit world thinking he was, he was going to be empowered, but instead he was imprisoned. And again, look at the results in Mark 5, verse 5. Always day and night he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. I mean, that's got to be one of the most tragic, one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. People don't realize that Satan is a supreme thief. And when people get involved with the occult, really, they are putting themselves under the control of the supreme thief who does nothing but robs them of everything that is important and precious and good. I mean, look at this guy. He was robbed, first of all, of his sanity. Here he is crying out with this um, a tormented cry like he was out of his mind. In fact, when Jesus finally cast the demons out, we see him sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his what? Right mind. Implying that the devil had taken his sanity. Also, we see him cutting himself, which means the devil had taken his self-control. The cutting of oneself is something that's been a part of the occult for centuries. And I think it's a, a sign of demonic influence. Now, there's a lot of young people today who are cutting themselves. And I'm, I can't tell you it's all demonic. I'm not saying that. Uh, but I do believe a lot of it is. A lot of these kids have given themselves over to some very dark music with demonic lyrics. Some of them are very heavily involved in the occult. Uh, there was a time when the whole Harry Potter series came out that if you went to um, the movie website, it actually linked to real live Wiccan websites that would had real uh, incantations and things on the webs until parents figured out what was going on and began to scream and they took those links off of there. These kids were linking to real live witchcraft websites, learning real incantations, real spells. And I'll tell you what the result was, and still is, because the occult among young people is out the window. Man. It's, just, it's just exploding. And a lot of it is with video games too. Some of these video games are absolutely demonic themselves. But... Um, a lot of these kids are involved in these things, and it's having some very devastating effects on them. We'll talk about that more in just a second. 
But the devil robbed this guy of his sanity, of his self-control. He robbed him of, uh, of their families, their friends. I mean, they were forced to live outside of town with no contact with any friends or family members. Again, Satan is a deceiver and a destroyer. Jesus said he only comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And I believe that means to steal freedom from a person, to steal their freedom, to kill their body, and to destroy their soul. That's what I think the devil is really up to, to steal, kill, and destroy. He steals not only their freedom, but he steals everything important to them, like their family, their friends, and sometimes even their faith. And folks, he has all kinds of tools that he used to accomplish. It's not just the occult, by the way. The devil has got all kinds of tools that he uses to bring people under his control. He uses drugs. He uses alcohol. He uses sexual perversion. There's a lot of things that he uses that will destroy a person's mind and body and ultimately uh, destroy their soul and health. I mean, just look around at our society and see the effects of Satan's handiwork. You see it everywhere. And I'm going to say this, and please don't misunderstand me about this either, but I believe that much in the way of mental disorders today are spiritual in nature. I'm not saying all of it, but we have a pastor and his wife who minister in um, a facility, a mental health facility, and they have told us some pretty interesting stories about confrontations with people they were convinced were, were demon-possessed. I don't say everybody in a mental institution is, is demon-possessed. Don't get me wrong. But I do believe a lot of it is the result of demonization in one form or another. And again, I look at these kids today, and to see all the suicides today among young people, even making these suicide packs, can you believe this? Where at a certain time, a whole group of friends are going to kill themselves at a certain time on a certain day. Now, if that's not demonic, you tell me what that is. You know, the first thing that happened when these demons entered into this herd of swine, all the swine ran down the hill and killed themselves, basically. Again, Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And when kids open themselves up to the realm of the demonic, whether they realize it or not, that's what it is, they become more and more withdrawn, more and more depressed, and more and more suicidal. And I'll be willing to bet you, if I was a betting man, if you could talk to the parents of kids who have committed suicide, a lot of them will tell you that they became suddenly withdrawn, couldn't talk to them anymore, their personalities changed. And if the parents dug a little de deeper, they found out they were listening to some, some bad music uh, involved in the occult some way. And I'm telling you, this is an epidemic in our society today. All right, what Satan did, well, he enslaved this guy because these men opened themselves up to the realm of the demonic. How about what society did? Well, what they did was they put these men in chains and tried to isolate them from society by forcing them to live out in the tombs in the mountains. You know, just get them away from people. Get them away from the people, the town and its people. Luke tells us that they even put a guard out there to guard them and keep them away from everyone. And, you know, that's exactly what our society does with those whose antisocial destructive behavior make them a menace to society. What do we do? We isolate them, right? We put them in prison uh, somewhere. We put them in chains if we have to make sure they stay put. We put a guard over them to make sure that they stay exactly where we want. Get them away from society. Chain them up. Lock them up. Just get them away from society. You say, well, wait a minute. Are you saying we shouldn't put people in prison who have destructive behaviors and hurt others? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But listen, that hasn't been the answer really either. If we're talking about rescuing people from the power of the devil, putting them in prison, 
unless there's a good prison ministry in there, is not the answer either. More and more people are being sent to prison uh, every year. And when they get out, the recidivism rate is between 70 and 80 percent. I mean, we can't blame society for trying to deal with the problem. But society, they don't really have the answer. Just lock them up. Get them away from everybody. And sure, they have their, their uh, programs where they try to rehabilitate. They're not doing so good. Because they don't need rehabilitation. They need to be regenerated. They need to be saved. And only Jesus can do that. So Satan tried to destroy them. Society tried to isolate them. But Jesus wanted to liberate them. In Mark chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, we read, Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. You know, Jesus desires to do this with everyone who is in bondage to the devil. And that is to set them free. And folks, you know, believe me when I say this. I'm not talking, we're not talking here now about those who are just demon-possessed. Okay? Now it's a broader issue, isn't it? Because the whole world apart from Jesus is under the devil's control. John said that. John in his first epistle, chapter 5, around verse 13, the whole world lies under the sway or control of the evil one. So people, I don't care if they're atheists or not, they don't understand they are being influenced and controlled by the devil in some way, shape, or form. Sure, the folks that get involved in the occult, Satanism, witchcraft, whatever, they open the door big time and they can be possessed by the devil. When we're talking about liberating people, I'll tell you what, we're talking about the gospel now because only the gospel of Jesus Christ can set people free from the power of the devil. In fact, when Paul the Apostle was recounting the ministry the Lord Jesus commissioned him into, To go to the Gentiles in Acts 26, verse 18, he is talking about what the Lord told him to do and what the ministry was going to be all about. He says, Paul, I'm sending you to the Gentiles with the gospel to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God, that they might receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus Christ is the great liberator, isn't he, of mankind. Mankind who was put into bondage way back in the Garden of Eden. When man thought he knew what was best for his life and disobeyed God and obeyed the devil, at that point, man turned over the world to the devil who became the god of this world and man's new master. And so from that point to the point you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you and I were in bondage to the devil and maybe we didn't even realize it, but that's what was going on. And it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ who can set men and women free. It's the power of God. And so Jesus did for these men what society couldn't do. He liberated them. But here's where the story takes a very interesting turn as we bring this to a close. And I'm going to read out of Luke 8, verses 34 to 37. When those who fed them, who fed the swine, saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country... Then they went out, all the people of the city and surrounding regions went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, I love this, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. I mean, that to me is a beautiful picture of salvation. Before we get saved, we're running around doing our own thing, not even realizing how much the devil is controlling us. We're not really even in our right mind. We think we are, okay? 
involved with sin, which is shame in God's eyes, right? And yet when we get saved, we want to sit at Jesus' feet worshiping him. We're no longer clothed with shame. Now we're clothed with his righteousness. And we're in our right minds. You know, I look back at my life before I got saved, and I can't even tell you why I did some of the dumb things I did. You know, if you ask me today, why would you do all that stuff? I don't, I'm, I don't know. I wasn't in my right mind. Like the prodigal son, right? Had to go out there and experience the world. And it wasn't until he hit rock bottom that he was feeding the pigs, right? Which for a Jew is about the lowest job you could get. And what happens? He comes to his senses, right? He comes into his right mind and says, what am I doing here? Praise God. And God does that, right? Turns the lights on. He says, what are you doing here? You know, you could be a child of the king and here you're slopping pigs in the mud pit of the world. What, are you, what is this? I mean, I've got the robes of righteousness, the royal robes of righteousness waiting for you. I have an invitation I'm extending for you to be a member of my family and my kingdom. What are you doing living like this in the world? So the whole town comes out and sees this guy sitting there, calm, clothed, in his right mind, sitting at Jesus' feet. And they were afraid. They also, who had seen it, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. And the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes, or excuse me, the Gergesenes, asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. That's an interesting reaction, isn't it? You would think that the people of the city would be rejoicing. Not only was their problem over with, but these two guys, I mean, as members of their community, could have been fathers, husbands. I'm sure they were somebody's friends at one time, brothers. You think that they would have said, oh my goodness, look at these two guys. They're healed. They're, the demons have been cast out. Jesus, could you come into the city? We've got other people that need you to touch and heal them. They didn't do that. Instead, they asked him to leave their country. Why did they ask him to leave? If you read the commentators, there's a lot of opinions on this. Some say, well, they were angry because Jesus stole their livelihood. You know, they, this was a big industry there in the, uh, around Gergesa, and, and, and it robbed the town of a lot of income. Well, I'm sure they weren't happy about it. But it doesn't say they were angry, does it? Why did they ask him to leave? Because they were what? They were afraid. They were greatly afraid. Interesting. Why were they so greatly afraid? Why were they seized with great fear, it says? Well, I think Pastor John MacArthur put his finger on it. I think he was the only one I really read that came with this viewpoint. I, I think he's right. Let me read it to you. He says, and I quote, When unholy men come face to face with the holy God, they are terrified. Again, we are reminded that when Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up, he exclaimed, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of glory. After Peter witnessed Jesus' miraculous provision of fish that nearly sunk two fishing boats, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. When the storm came on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples were afraid. But when they saw Jesus calm the storm, they were even more afraid. They were more afraid of Jesus than the storm because they realized that God himself was in the boat with them. The sinner who knows he faces God can only see his sin and the result is fear, end quote. Folks, this is what is called godly fear, a fear that is good. There's a lot of people that fear God, but they don't let that fear lead them to repentance and to a point where they get their lives right with God. They fear God. In their hearts, they know that someday they're going to have to stand before that God, but they still want to live the way they want to live. 
And that fear, that makes them uncomfortable. I want to live with that fear. I don't want to live with God looking over my shoulder. I want him just to go away. Just just go away, God. Leave me alone. Let me go on living my life the way I want. All right? I, I don't want to deal with you. I mean, when you're around, I feel bad about myself. I'm fearful of standing before you someday and giving an account. Hey, look, let me just say this. If you're here this morning, and as we're talking about this, you can honestly say, you know what, I really do fear standing. I believe there is a God. I believe someday we're all going to stand before Him. And I fear the day when I have to stand before a holy God and give an account for the life that I've lived. You know what, that's good. If you allow it right now, it'll lead you to repentance. If not, and you choose to bury your head in the sand and tell God, go away, leave me alone, well, you'll stand before him someday. And that fear is going to be realized in the sense that he is going to say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. I didn't want this for you. I sent my son to die for you that you might not have to spend eternity in hell. But you rejected me. You wanted nothing to do with me. And now I reject you. But I'll tell you, for the person who bends the knee to Christ now and says, Lord, I believe who you are. You're the Son of God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And I don't know why, Lord, but I know that you love me. I mean, I've lived a pretty rotten life. But I know you love me. And I know you're inviting me to be your, your child. And so, Lord Jesus, I receive you. I absolutely receive you. I turn my life over to you. I bow the knee to your lordship. You're now in control of my life. You're now my master. I am your slave. Whatever you tell me to do, that I will do. When you do that, your whole life changes. You're not anxious, fearful, running around, trying to find happiness in all the wrong places. Suddenly now, you find yourself sitting at Jesus' feet all the time in worship. You're calm. You're at peace. And you're in your right mind. Well, let's just finish the story. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 5, in verses 17 to 20, it says, Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he has had compassion on you. And the man departed and began to proclaim to Catholics all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. You know why they marveled? Because there is no greater testimony than a changed life. Can you imagine everybody who knew this guy? I'm sure he was well, they were both well known. Can you imagine this guy coming into town, different towns? Aren't you the guy that was living out in the tombs? Screaming all night long, cutting yourself, breaking chains, terrifying everybody. Aren't you that guy? Yeah. What happened? Jesus happened. Man, I had been to counselors. I had been to, you know, I had been to everybody. Nobody can help me. Society finally just wrote me off, put me out in the tombs and chained me there. Just get rid of me. And this man, Jesus, came looking for me. He looked for me. And he set me free. You know what? I want to tell everybody about him. In fact, I wanted to go with him. He told me, no. You go back to your friends and your family. You be a witness there first. Folks, let me just say this to you. Some people think, Christians, I'm going to go to Africa. I'm going to be a witness for the Lord there. How are you going to cross an ocean to be a witness for Jesus in Africa if you can't cross the street and be a witness to your own neighbors? 
or your own family members. You always start first with those closest to you. Be prepared, because a lot of us did that, and our friends and families wrote us off as nut jobs. That's okay. You know what? It's been 30-some years since I received the Lord. You know what? I think some of them are beginning to soften a little bit. Oh, maybe this is not a fad. <laughs> well, you know, no, it's not a fad. I mean, you know, it's been 30-some years, but guys still going strong. Oh, maybe this is real. I'll tell you what, man, the greatest and most powerful testimony is a changed life. And, of course, it starts by going to your friends and family. But let me just end by saying this. We Americans, we're really into freedom, aren't we? We have been blessed to live in the freest country in the world. And we love our freedom. We, we really guard our freedom because it's precious to us. And freedom is a good thing if it's used the right way. Anytime you exercise your freedom in such a way as you violate what God has said, you always do so to your own peril. Because God has placed restrictions on our lives not to hinder us from having a good life, but to promote and bless us with the best life possible. And whenever a person exercises their freedoms in such a way that they get involved with what God says not to be involved with, that freedom, so-called, always brings them into bondage. It brings them under its control. You know, it would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. How some, I've heard some people over the years say, I don't want to be a Christian. Because you Christians, you, know, you can't have any fun. You can't do what you want. You can't go out and party and drink and smoke and have sex. And Yeah, you're right. That's really a drag. I can't go out there and get AIDS and get cirrhosis and get lung cancer. You're right, man. I mean, you know, and I, it really gets me sometimes, you know, that I can't do those things. Are you kidding me, man? Are you kidding me? You think I was born a Christian? I did all that stuff. And I'm here to tell you it's not freedom, it's bondage. And Paul the Apostle said, look, all things are lawful for me. Why? Because I'm in Christ. I'm saved by grace. But that doesn't mean I'm going to use my liberty in such a way as to bring myself under bondage to something else. Because I love my freedom too much, Paul said, to ever give myself over to anything that would bring me under his control. And he said in Romans 6, look, be careful, Christians, because Jesus Christ has set you free. But if you give yourself back over to the things that Jesus sets you free from, they will ensnare you again and bring you under their control. And a lot of Christians who have been delivered from pornography and drugs and alcohol, after they've walked in that freedom for a while, they've gotten used to it. They've taken it for granted. And they start to, started to dabble again. And now we're under the devil's control in that area all over again. Of course, Jesus can set them free again. But why go there? Why go there? Paul said it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Don't entangle yourselves again in the yoke of bondage. Appreciate that freedom. Walk in that freedom. You want to be in bondage or in slavery to somebody? Be in slavery to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greatest master in the whole universe. He will never do anything to hurt you. He will only lead you in the paths that are good for your life. That's the freedom I want. I want the freedom to serve Christ with all my heart and not to get entangled again with all the junk I used to think was so liberating when, in fact, it was just bringing me under the devil's control. So may God give us grace to understand that, you know what, I don't care how much a person's life is in bondage to the devil. And there are people who say, you know what, Pastor, well, I'd like to be set free of this stuff. I'm in, man. Every day I wake up with this heroin addiction or this or that. And you know what, I, I, I would love to be set free, but I don't even think Jesus can set me free. Folks, this could have been the worst case of demonic possession in the history of the world. 
Yet Jesus set this man free. It's no, it's no problem for Jesus to set us free from whatever it is that has us bound. And he's able to do it if you're willing. And you're willing to bow the knee and turn your life over to him as your Lord and Savior. There's no prison that he can't blow the doors off of if you come to him in faith. May God give us the grace to understand that. Father, we thank you so much for your word and for this passage in particular, Lord, because so many are bound by so many things today. And many of them, Lord, have walked in that bondage for so long, they feel it's hopeless, they feel helpless. They don't think their life is ever going to change. And Lord, through stories like this one right here in your word and through the countless testimonies that we see every day from the lives of people who are, were once in bondage to various things who you have set free through the power of your gospel. Lord, thank you for the encouragement. Thank you, Lord, that you are bigger than any problem, any weakness, any bad habit, any demon of hell, even the devil himself. They must all bow before your presence and acknowledge that you are Lord. And Lord, if we're in you, there's nothing the devil can ever do that will take us from you. Give us the grace, Lord, to walk in that freedom. Give us the grace to appreciate it every morning we get up, Lord, and thank you for it every evening before we go to sleep. We just praise you, Lord. For saving us, for redeeming us, for setting us free. We ask all this in your precious name. Amen.